When you think of the word exile, what comes to mind? Probably something like being banned from or banished from one's country for political or punitive reasons, which would be accurate. You may also even think of exiled individuals, like in our recent history, Julian Assange, the editor of WikiLeaks, who published secret U.S. war documents and a video of a murder that forced him to flee his native Australia, exiling himself. But while in British custody, somehow he gained Ecuadorian citizenship and currently, today, remains exiled in that South American embassy in London. Last century, Albert Einstein would rank among the most famous exiles. The renowned theoretical physicist was a citizen of Switzerland, but he exiled himself to the United States at the beginning of World War II to escape the Nazi Holocaust, but also to keep Hitler from exploiting his scientific knowledge to create the atomic bomb. He actually helped us develop that technology. And if we turn back the clock even further, perhaps Napoleon would be remembered as one of the most well-known exiles. The brilliant French military general and emperor was finally defeated in the Battle of Leipzig and he was exiled to the Mediterranean island of Elba in 1813. From there, he made a failed attempt to regain power and was exiled again to a far more remote and inhospitable island in the Atlantic Ocean where he died. In Daniel chapter 1, our text this morning, Israel is sent into exile. And their experience shares some similarities with the banishment of these more familiar individuals I just referenced. Israel's exile in 605 BC also came as a result of military conquest. The Babylonian general Nebuchadnezzar, after defeating the Assyrians and Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish, on the border of Turkey and Syria, he established Babylon as the new ancient Near Eastern superpower. Nebuchadnezzar also assumed the throne at that time as his father died during the campaign. And while his ascendancy and unstoppable momentum was growing, Nebuchadnezzar besieged the capital of Jerusalem on his return march home. He plundered the holy city and took captives, not everyone, but just the royal family. The total deportation of the nation would come 22 years later. As we'll see, this exile also entailed Babylon using their captives for knowledge and wisdom and any advantage that could be gained from the Jews' brightest citizens, not unlike Einstein. And finally, similar to Napoleon, Nebuchadnezzar's removal of Israel's king and his lineage was to deprive the nation of leadership, to dissuade any attempts at further uprising, which would eventually occur and lead to Israel's complete captivity. This is Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And because it is a longer passage, we'll just read the first half. So please look on your Bibles with me as we read God's Word together this morning. Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God.
And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Asphenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Would you pray with me over God's word? Father, you love your people, and because you do, you feed us your word on the Lord's day to change us and to nourish us and to protect us, to serve us and to love us. And my prayer is that they would receive, this church would receive your word from you this morning as it actually is the word of God, the voice of God to them. And no one would leave out of here unedified, unaffected. Lord, you are good to do that. You have built this church on your word. And I pray that my feeble attempts to communicate it would not obscure the greatness of who you are as revealed here in Holy Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In the opening illustration, I mentioned how Israel's exile contains similarities to our modern perception of exile and actual individuals who have been exiled. But here's where Israel's banishment was most different from all those examples given earlier. The Israelites were not seeking asylum. It was not about their own safety. Israel could not escape the punishment being brought to them. The crimes that even if they tried to get out from under would not be exonerated because it was God who was sentencing them, judging them with exile. And we're going to look at that under the first point, which I've titled for you note takers, the Lord's integrity in exile. Point one is the Lord's integrity in exile. Look back with me, if you would, at verse one. And that's going to propel us into further necessary background study. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Jehoiakim was the son of Josiah, Judah's last virtuous king who led a a brief reformation before he was slain in battle and Israel became a vassal of Egypt. The victor, Pharaoh Necho, installed Jehoiakim as Israel's ruler, but he was nothing more than a puppet. First of Egypt and then after their demise, now Babylon. But the problem with Jehoiakim goes further back to his great-great-grandfather, King Hezekiah. Although Hezekiah was a righteous monarch in many ways, in 2 Kings 20, he receives envoys, he receives gifts from Babylon's King Meriodach. And he does that in an attempt to form an alliance This was when Assyria reigned supreme. So Babylon is trying to join forces with Israel. And here's how verse 13 of 2 Kings recounts the ominous scene. 
Hezekiah received the envoys and showed them all that was in his storehouse. The silver, the gold, the spices, and the fine olive oil. His armory and everything found among his treasure. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Do you understand? Hezekiah was offering his resources, his cooperation with Babylon. He he was looking to them for protection, for help that was only to come from the Lord. This is one of the major themes of Daniel. The warning that compromise, that making coalitions with the world, however practical or prudent they may seem, will eventually bring destruction. Listen to Isaiah's rebuke of Hezekiah. This is the rest of the Second Kings passage. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say? Where where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came from Babylon. The prophet asked, what what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There's nothing among my treasures I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The fulfillment of that ominous prediction is Daniel chapter 1. And Hezekiah's alliance was especially deplorable because God had just miraculously delivered Israel from the overwhelming number of Sennacherib's army when it surrounded Jerusalem. It's perhaps the most stunning military victory in the annals of the Old Testament as 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were slain by the angel of Yahweh in a single night. It was after that that he made an alliance with Babylon. How could he prostitute himself that way? God was so demonstrably and dominantly on Judah's side. This action could not have been more rejecting, more rebellious. And so, the just consequence was it the very treasure and weapons Hezekiah flaunted and pledged to Babylon, Babylon now comes to collect. And not in cooperation, but by conquering them. But please note, Israel was not exiled because of their failed political strategy or Nebuchadnezzar's military supremacy or just the historic power shifts that have always roiled the Middle East. No, look at verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Yahweh exiled his people. God himself was paying them back, and specifically for their violation of the covenant. That's why I've titled point one, The Lord's Integrity in Exile. See, the Babylonian captivity was Yahweh keeping his word. And not just for Hezekiah's associations with the world, but for specific violations of the law. God gives the climactic consequences for Israel's failure to exclusively obey and worship and serve and trust him in Leviticus 26. And it's, it's a terrifying chapter. It, it typifies how utterly holy Yahweh must be for such gruesome consequences to be righteous. If Israel abandoned the Lord their God, if they imitated and assimilated the nations around them, their crops would fail, disease would ravage the population, their enemies would triumph over them. If they did not repent, 
wild animals would attack them and their cities would be laid in ruin. And it's, it's almost too difficult for me to repeat the horrors of siege warfare that are threatened next. But the final punishment, the ultimate punishment for rebellion is exile. This is Leviticus 26.33. It's short. It's as sober as it gets. I will scatter you. I, I will scatter you among the nations. Nothing could be more devastating to God's people than to be cast out of the very promised land, to be removed from the temple and God's presence. This is Adam and Eve being exiled from the garden all over again. And you see in Daniel 1-2 where it says, and Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar. The land of Shinar is mentioned in Genesis 11. That's where the Tower of Babel was erected, man's monument to himself, and the heights he could reach apart from God. And do you remember what the judgment for such arrogance was? Yahweh scattered the people. He exiled them. He sent them away from one another. He confused their languages, disunifying them and bringing untold strife and conflict to mankind. The covenant curses of Leviticus 26 then ends with this stunning reason God gives for deporting his people. And I know this is a lot. We're doing, we're doing heavy Old Testament history here, but try to stay with me. This is the ultimate reason he gives for Daniel 1. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years. All the times that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies, then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbath. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbath you lived in it. Every seven years, Israel was to let their land lie fallow. That is to not cultivate it, but allow it a Sabbath rest. In the same way God would provide twice as much manna on Friday during the desert wanderings so they would not have to work on Saturday but could freely worship God on the Sabbath, so too he could be trusted to not work the ground in the seventh year because he would provide abundant crops in the sixth year. But Israel disobeyed. From the beginning of the monarchy, that is when Saul became king in 1046 BC, until the deportation of Israel here in Daniel 490 years later, 70 Sabbath years should have been observed. And none were. And so God comes to collect his due. As that is exactly how long the captivity in Babylon lasted. One year for every seven they neglected, totaling 70 years of rest for the land of Israel. In the latter prophetic half of Daniel, the calculations and precision of Yahweh's exacting punishment is just breathtaking. But listen, here at the outset, I want this point to register. It is the Lord's integrity that brings about Israel's exile. He is keeping his oath, his end of the covenant. When God swears in his word that he will mete out judgment for sins, there should be no question he will bring about what he promised. Righteous penalties 
will come to pass. Recompense is on its way, no matter how delayed, because Yahweh cannot lie. He will bring every violation of his law to account. The, The Lord's integrity to exile sinners is unavoidable, and it could not be more dreadful. So, so here's the warning of the tragic opening verses of Daniel. Whatever you are trusting in, whatever you are looking to besides the Lord, like Hezekiah did when he sought security in Babylon, wherever you aren't believing God's promises, taking matters into your own hands, disobeying his covenant commands based on your own wisdom, whenever you look to the nations, the world, putting hope in what they do, bowing to their idols, those things will consume you. They will take you captive. If you and I reject the Lord, He will reject us. He will exile us. Give us over to our fears, our lusts, our greed, our gluttony, our infatuations. I mean, haven't you found that to be true? If you seek to locate your happiness in your marriage, it will disappoint you, embitter you. If if you make career advancement your identity, you will cut corners. You will obsess over your performance. You will never say no to your boss. And before you realize it, your office hours will always take precedence over your family. And and need I admonish you, the more you look at your phone trying to find something entertaining, Something that even resembles good news. Something popular. Something stimulating. Something to distract you from being a responsible, engaged, productive human being. The the more you look at your phone, the more you are captive to your phone. And do you you feel the exile in those things? The, The distance... The separation from the Lord that sin causes. Church, that's a function of His integrity. His covenant fidelity. You cannot seek life apart from Him and not expect to reap what you sow, to to pay the price, the punishment He's prescribed. But listen, here is the inexplainable conclusion of the covenant blessings and curses in Leviticus 26. This is after being exiled, after Israel served their prison sentence, and the land had its 70 years of Sabbath. Verse 44 records, yet in spite of this, in spite of our rebellion and our removal as God's people, yet in spite of this, When they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them. What? Why not? How could it say that? I I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. For, but for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. This is, this is astonishing. The Lord, the Lord's keeping His Word, what I've titled Integrity in Exile, includes his integrity to redeem. Not just to punish, but to deliver. God promises, in fact, even in the middle of judgment, to still be with his people. To set them free from their bondage. Even though it is their iniquity and guilt that brought about the very banishment that they are currently experiencing. This this church, this is scandalous grace. But before their faith 
uh, excuse me, but before we get to the faith, because there are four Hebrew teenagers who believe that, who trust that grace, who know that God's promises aren't just exile, but redemption. But before we get to them and their amazing faith and courage, first we need to look at the setting for their exile, the temptations that are described. And we'll look at that under point two, the world's agenda of assimilation. So first was the Lord's integrity in exile. Next is the world's agenda of assimilation. Look at verse three. Again, the king commanded Asphanaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. In Babylon, the purpose of removing the princes of a conquered land, Nebuchadnezzar actually executed the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, but he took his sons back to the seat of his empire, not just to remove leadership from those left behind in Israel, but to assimilate his hostages into the pagan culture, to conform them to its values, and then to use their talents as attendants in his court. And as far as enslavement goes, this could not have been a sweeter setup. As these Israelite boys were basically treated as royalty, but now that of a foreign and far more wealthy and powerful empire. They were to eat Nebuchadnezzar's decadent food, be tutored and trained by his finest scholars, become assimilated into that society, and then they would be enlisted into his service as sons of Babylon. There are actually detailed historical records of the ancient empire of Babylon, including their education system, which allows us to state really with some certainty that Daniel and his friends were between ages 14 and 15, which is when the training of young men began. They would have learned the Aramaic language and later Persian. They would have spent many hours copying paradigms, legal materials, and religious documents. They would have studied fables and omen texts, mathematics and economics, and historical material for a period of three years. One scholar described the Judean boys' curriculum as being trained in systematized superstition. But... Are you guys paying the bills? <laughs> I thought Maryland was high in taxes. They should have plenty of money. Who needs lights? Keep it's funny. Almost like California. Sorry, I, I really do like living in Virginia more than now. What is that on your faces? Okay, so here we go. Here's, listen, here's where, as bad as that is, here's where the world's agenda of assimilation is at its deadliest. It's in the names it attempts to give us. The words it uses to describe us and to define us. Look at verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now, names today in so many ways have become a creativity contest with no real connection to history or family. I have a niece named Trinity, middle name, Seven. I'm sorry, that's a true statement. I have another cousin named Panda. Her last name is 
bear. <laughs> Thus is my lineage. Listen, in biblical times, names were very serious. They associated you with your ancestors. They often conveyed your identity, your character, and even your destiny. Daniel's Hebrew name means God is my judge. But his Babylonian name was now Belteshazzar, which means the god Bel protect my life. Do you see... Every time someone referred to Daniel, it would be an enticement to trust a false deity. Really, his new name was a prayer, a petition for a God other than Yahweh to safeguard him. Hundreds of times a day, Daniel would be reminded every time someone spoke to him, he would be forced to accept, to assimilate, to what appeared to be reality, that the Lord was no longer Israel's shelter or strong tower. Bel was. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. But the name his captors gave him, Shadrach, means under the command of Aku, Babylon's moon god. The next name is not even a subtle attempt to corrupt and assimilate Mishael. His Israelite name means who is what God is, but his Babylonian replacement, Meshach, means who is what Aku is. Think about how diabolical that is. Every time Mishael was addressed, he would be reminded that Judah had fallen. That Aku seemed to have prevailed over Yahweh. That, that maybe God wasn't supreme. That his very name would cast, his own name would now cast doubt on the Lord. The final Hebrew slave, Asariah, his name meant Yahweh will help, while his heathen name meant servant of Nebu, the same God that Nebuchadnezzar's name acknowledged. Grace Church, listen to me. The world wants to feed you its diet. It wants to teach you to speak its language. It wants to defile and define you and name you and make it its own. And everything it does in its agenda of assimilation entails some form of questioning that God is not enough, that God is not who you answer to, that God will not defend you, and that God is not good and satisfying and worthy. You and I right now are being groomed by our godless culture to serve an enemy king. And it is constantly indoctrinating us. The world's music is repeatedly telling you that love is the same thing as sexual pleasure and is no longer limited by antiquated concepts like gender, which can mean whatever your feelings dictate. In school curriculums, HR policies, congressional laws, the agenda of assimilation pushes a victimization narrative in place of the doctrine of sin. No longer are we responsible for or answerable for our own selfish choices. No, now it's our genetics. Our chemical imbalances, our socioeconomic status, our skin color that is to blame. Some institution or authority figure is culpable for all of our suffering, as if there shouldn't be suffering in a fallen world. But here's where I want you to make even deeper application. It's in how Babylon has named you what it calls you and wants you to believe about yourself. One such label, one such name, is abused. That's what the ruler of this world has named some of you. Abused. 
your identity is that of damaged goods. The sins others have done against you and the scars that remain, that's what defines you. That's who you think you are. Oh, we, we don't realize how we begin to take on the lies of what iniquity says about us. You'll never be sexually pure, free of immorality. You are lust. Your name is lust, men, and increasingly women, who hear that label every time they fall. And they begin to believe that about themselves. Because temptation is so constant and compromise is so frequent, viewing pornography seems inevitable, unavoidable, actually a part of who they are. Those who continuously complain, do you know what they've been named? Their problems. That's who they become. Everything that is wrong with their life, what they don't like, that's what now defines them. That is their new identity. And the same can be applied to the anxious and fearful, which the name they now go by, is alone. God has not protected them from pain in the past, has abandoned them, forsaken them, so now they can trust only themselves. They must ensure their own safety and future happiness, a task they were never meant to shoulder and are failing miserably at, which only increases fear and anxiety and the conclusion that, yes, I'm, I, I'm alone. That's who I am. Church, the world is always trying to name you after its false gods, trying to identify you with your sin, But the Lord is your king. He is your savior, your father. He has claimed you as his own. And he alone has the right, the prerogative to name you. Isaiah 56, 5. This is precious. This is power to them. I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name that is better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be covered. He's going to give us his last name. Revelation 3.2, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. No more exile. I will write on them the name of my God. On you. He will write his name. Property of. I will write on them the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Your name is Hananiah. God is gracious. Azariah, Yahweh will help. Mishael, no one is what God is to us and for us. The Lord has named us His beloved sons and daughters. That is who you are. God calls you. Healed, holy, his treasured possession, his, his own body, his very bride. But listen, you have to read your Bible if you're going to have that truth reinforced. To believe, to actually believe what God says about you and your identity. If, if the world's agenda is to assimilate you, is always attacking your thoughts, always seeking to rename you, you are not going to be able to counter that with that onslaught, with just five minutes, just skimming a random passage, shoved into your already distracted and bombarded mind. Please, you have to listen to what God says about you. 
who he says you are and will be in his word. You cannot do anything that will bring yourself more joy, more wholeness, more security, and more hope. Amen? Amen. All right, that's point two. Do we have time limits here? I hope not. Kids, you're doing great. Well done, guys. It's all right. Mom and dad probably aren't catching much of what I'm saying either. It's kind of weighty. Point two, the world's agenda of assimilation. Brings us to point three, the final point and the briefest. The righteousness resistance. The righteousness resistance. And we've actually begun to consider that. But I want you to observe in conclusion what it looks like in our young Hebrew heroes. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head, like, i.e., I would lose it, literally, with Nebuchadnezzar. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants. For ten days, let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. Now, the issue with Nebuchadnezzar's food was not that it was meat, but that it was unclean for the Jews. Yahweh forbid people from eating horse flesh or pig or any other animals typically associated with the pagan worship of the surrounding nations. Individuals also mistakenly viewed Daniel's request for only vegetables and water as motivated out of some kind of a health concern and have even made it into a fad, the Daniel diet. The only problem is that the Hebrew boys actually gained weight while on the Daniel diet. Look at verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. Oops, they were fatter in flesh than all the youth who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were drink, given to drink and gave them vegetables. So this is, not, this is not vegetarianism. This is the miraculous power of God to preserve and prosper his people when they resist assimilation. When their actions counter not just the world, but even logic itself. See, ancient cultures did not value what is our obsession with all things lean, toned physiques. No, that was actually a sign of being impoverished, starving, emaciation, low body fat was often the characteristic of a slave or sickness. But fatness represented wealth, abundance, blessing. And so for Daniel and his companions to be fatter after taking in less calories was supernatural. It was a sign that obeying Yahweh, even in exile, in a hostile environment, that following God's ways, even when it doesn't make practical sense, would prove the Lord's faithfulness. That he protects, that he provides, and that he prospers. But the risks are real. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, their resistance was not just jeopardizing themselves. These teens were endangering their peers, their supervisors. Really, the entire school feared reprisal for their resistance to assimilation. And, and think about the delicacies they were foregoing. And the temptation to indulge, especially because no one would know. They were 900 miles from home. Here's the question that God is asking us through Daniel. Do you stand out 
in our culture? Or maybe better put, do you stand up to our culture? Do you resist making life about your career, your leisure, your material possessions, your hobbies, your family? When, when the world looks at your calendar, your credit card statements, the conversations that come out of your mouth, do they see resistance or assimilation? And friends, we must resist no longer just on the front of being successful and satisfying, being seduced by the affluence and ambition all around us. No, we must now resist a frontal assault taking place in America on who we are. Will you resist the lies of transgenderism? The flagrant rebellion in naming oneself the opposite of who God has said they are? Will you resist using preferred pronouns that pervert the very image of God in man and women, which the Lord made and still declares very good? Will you resist critical race theory and its denial of the doctrine of sin that hating and being hated is the plight of man and has been since the fall of Genesis 3 and that only forgiveness in Christ can bring down the dividing wall of hostility? Will you resist? At the end of chapter 1 here, the righteous' resistance we see in these teenagers isn't just in how they live. It's in what they say. Look at verse 17 in conclusion. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. They had discernment. They knew right from wrong. They were winsome. Did you see the way Daniel appeals? They respected authority over them, and yet their words were bold and well-timed. They understood the future. God gave them insight. He gave them clarity. He gave them truth. And here's the result. After they navigated and graduated from the University of Babylon, which was even more corrupt, if you could believe it, than our colleges, here's what it says, verse 18. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found. Like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that we're in all his kingdom. Church, we are called to shine brightly in this dark hour. Those around us should hear in us and see in us a humility, a peace, a sincerity, an understanding, and a love that is from Above And if ever the world needed us to boldly, courageously proclaim what the real problem is, that our sins have exiled us from a holy God, and what the solution is to be restored to Him through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is now. Listen, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they will stand up. They will resist. They will not bow before Nebuchadnezzar's golden idol and they will be delivered from the fiery furnace in chapter 4. He will deliver you too. Daniel will not pray to King Darius and will be rescued from the lion's den in chapter 6. He will rescue you too. But their righteousness, their resistance to assimilation, 
will not ultimately bring God's people back from exile. Now, their examples point to the one who, listen, would resist the devil himself, would not bow to the temptation in the wilderness to have the entire world given to him. Jesus would resist circumventing the cup of God's wrath in the garden of Gethsemane. And on the cross, he would resist coming down as the priests and even one of the thieves chided. And that's because on the cross, Jesus fully assimilated to the world. He took on himself and actually became our sin. He was obedient to death and by being so defeated death. He resisted it ultimately and rescued us from it eternally that our exile would be over and we would be resurrected with him, vindicated in him, and would live with him triumphant, satisfied, glorious, overjoyed forever. Let's pray. Father, we need that vision. We need to see that that is the conclusion. If we will stand, unlike the wavering churches of Revelation, if we will hold fast, if we will resist assimilation not only with you, but for you, like you, to be with you because there's a better country we're living for. Lord, we don't want the world to accept us. We want your approval. We, we stand before King Nebuchadnezzar, but ultimately we stand before you. And it is your righteousness. It is your pleasure It is being justified because of your son and his sacrifice in the gospel. Lord, it's because of that that we can now stand. And so I pray for this precious church that though it might feel weak and overwhelmed by the world at times, that it would know that you are with them, that even their sins don't disqualify them from your promises. You are a redeemer You have named this church and your plans for it to to shine and to be put on a lampstand for this world to see that they may observe the love and the good works and the truth in a culture that is increasingly led by deception. I pray, Lord, they would embrace that mission and you would use them powerfully to that end for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.